that night we were able to kayak into the bay and see um, bioluminescent algae in the water. And it was the for me, you know, let alone the kids, for me it was one of those magical things I've ever experienced. Episode 302, Brian Snyder is back with climbing, camping, kayaking, and more in the western United States. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Kurt here. Hey, we have a fun show today. Brian Snyder is back, and he has been on the Adventure Sports Podcast a couple of times in the past. We like to pull him back on because he's so active. He's writing books. He's an author, and they're books about his own adventures and how to have great adventures in the American West primarily. And so he has a new book out and another book that was coming out last time we talked, and we wanted to be able to review what he's been up to. A great guest and a fun guy with a really common spirit, a passion, and a love for adventure. So, Brian Snyder, welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, thanks, everybody. It's uh, great to be back. Yeah, I I should have looked up what show numbers that you were on so I could tell people which episodes to go listen to if they want to get the backstory on some of this. But they can always go to the Adventure Sports Podcast, and up at the top, there's a link that says Episode Categories. You click there. And then if you do a control F, you can search for Brian Snyder and you'll see the shows that he's been on. Um, Brian, thanks for coming back on and sharing with us again. I've been uh, reading through your books and I haven't finished them all, but I thoroughly enjoy what I've read so far. And uh, just let's start out this way. Let's give people just a little backstory. Um, you have four books. And I know that we've talked about a lot of this in, in past shows, so we don't have to do a deep dive, but the first book is Off the Map, second book, Further Off the Map, your new book, Falling Off the Map, which I want to spend quite a bit more time on, and then you also have a book about renegade car camping. Yep. And uh, all of this grew out of your lifestyle of kind of journeying around and doing lots of adventures and then keeping journal entries and getting them into book format so that others can enjoy what you do out there. So let's talk about your lifestyle. How did you get into this kind of adventurous travel around doing stuff lifestyle in the first place? Well, I'd say I, I grew up in a rural part of upstate New York. So it was a place where there was a lot of forested hills and there were lots of great places to explore. And And these forests were all uh, kind of ambiguous in terms of who owned them, whether they're owned by the state or they're people's private property. You never really knew for sure. But everybody's backyard had like routes towards adventure. So you could go explore the hills and find like, you know, ruins of houses and stone walls and things like that. So it was a great place to, I guess, maybe breed an, an adventurous uh, attitude. But uh, after college, I, uh, during my college years, I kind of gradually learned that I needed to work outdoors. So I, I stumbled across this career of environmental education. And I started working at outdoor science schools, which are places where students, usually fifth or sixth graders, will leave their regular school for like a week. And then they'll come to these outdoor science schools, which are usually held at places that are, have summer camps 
like conference centers and summer camps and things like that. So kids will go to those schools for one week and we take them hiking. We teach them about geology and astronomy and botany and things like that. And then they go back to the regular schools. And the following week we get, we get new kids that come. So I discovered this career of being a naturalist or environmental educator. And that's uh, allowed me to kind of see the country because usually these places provide housing for the naturalists. So you can work one season in Maine and then move on to work a season in Indiana. And I gradually kind of bounced my way west towards uh, California and California kind of finally captured me because uh, California tends to, to pay the best in terms of environmental education and educators. So I've been here for quite a while, and uh, because I usually work the school year, in summer times I was free as long as I travel cheaply, free to travel and explore uh, the regions around where I worked, uh, or just head to the Rocky Mountains and explore there. So once I was in the West, it, I, 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 I tended to stay there, and I would explore the, the North Cascades and the Rockies. And as long as I traveled really, really cheaply, I wouldn't have to work the summer season. Nice. So I, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that's been my life, uh, trying to save up during the school year, so that way in the summertime I can head out with my trusty Jeep, whose name is Charlie, and uh, and uh, head out into the wild and get in a lot of ventures. I, I it sounded like we had we had some kind of the same attitude uh, towards throwing ourselves into the wild and and seeing what happens and seeing what kind of foolish mistakes uh, <laughs> we can uh, um, incur upon ourselves. Well, they make for great stories. But Brian, I, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm hoping to teach my kids from my own mistakes so that they won't go out and make the same ones. I don't know if that really works, though. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it, we, as, as either parents or uh, teachers, we do great at teaching others to avoid the same mistakes that we make. However, um, a lot of times we ourselves fall prey to these internal foibles, you know, our, our fatal flaws, which somehow, somehow keep causing us to make uh, mistakes over and over again when we personally or s make solo trips into the wild. Yeah, I think it's just wanderlust, you know? What's around the next corner and the next one, the next one, the next one? Well, wait a minute. I'm in the middle of a blizzard. It's getting dark. <laughs> it's a long way back to shelter. You know, that's the yeah. kind of stuff I warn people about all the time. But hey, I'm guilty. I've been there, done that. But while traveling solo, sometimes you're, you you allow yourselves to make those mistakes just because you, you're not, there's nobody out there that's depending on your guidance. And so right. you... You feel freer to take to take risks and uh, and head back, you know, to, like be on top of a mountain and decide like, well, I went on the trail, a real trail on the way up, you know, how about what would it be like to go down the backside? Right. Yeah. 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 And I have too many backside stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it can be dangerous, but that, you know, you, you have to have a knowledge base and yeah. enough experience to to try to get yourself out of some of the binds you get yourself into but things mm -hmm. can happen i just have to say for the listeners you know don't don't be foolhardy things can happen that are beyond your control things that you wouldn't be able to to take care of so keep your head up keep it on a swivel make sure you're paying attention to what's going on when you're out there but man what what great stories we get when things don't go as planned <laughs> yeah exactly I have to say, too, we almost have something in common. It was several years ago, but I was a school teacher, and I took my mm -hmm. students to these camps that you 
where the instructor at, not your own camp, yeah. but the same sort of a parallel camp in Colorado, except mm-hmm. that I was the, the teacher instead of the outdoor education person. And I yeah. loved it. I really believe in that. Um, I saw such remarkable impacts on the kids, and I, I only got to see it a, a couple of times with the kids that I worked with, but you got to see that over and over and over again. I really believe in the value of connecting kids with nature and outdoor education. Um, what's your opinion on all that? How, how'd that work out for you? Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, I've been working in California, and a lot of the kids I work with these days, uh, some of them are kids that are... are you know, that they live in LA and they so rarely get the chance to kind of go out into the national forests. So you have to, the, 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 their introduction to the outdoors is, uh, is a delicate thing. You know, getting them to even sit on the ground, uh, is a lot of times a chance. That's a barrier for people. Um, they are, they've been told so often and almost by themselves or by their parents, you know, they have to keep their clothes clean. Right. So, yeah, so creating a sense of adventure in their experience in the outdoors is sometimes something you have to 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 create in order to get them to see themselves differently, like see their their relation to the wild as something different than they've seen in the movies. Like in the movies, the uh, it's a lot of times man versus nature; it's about right. overcoming things. Whereas in the these outdoor science schools, you're trying to um, create an environment where they see themselves as, you know, part of nature and nature being a place where they can have fun and explore and a place where, you know, magical things can happen and where they also, you know, if they, you know, if they grow to love and they grow to understand the outdoors and the outdoor environment and how things work together, they can take a sense of almost responsibility and ownership towards it and feel, and feel connected to it. So part of these outdoor schools is establishing a kid's connection or reestablishing that sense of connection that either they've forgotten about or they just haven't had the chance, the opportunity to experience uh, terribly much in their lives. Yeah. I also used to take smaller groups of kids on backpacking trips and teach repelling and, you know, parallel stuff to what you've made a career out of. I remember mm-hmm. one time we took a group of kids on a backpacking trip and it got dark and we... You know, those of us who were already connected to nature knew that special things were going on. And so we, we took the kids <laughs> on a little knoll where they could sit in this broad valley that was surrounded yeah. by really precipitous peaks. And we wanted to look at the stars and, and feel the hush of nature as, as night closed in. And we were really mm-hmm. encouraging them to pay attention. And all they could do was react to their their uncomfortableness with the surroundings. It's too dark. They're away from town. And everything that they're familiar with was missing. The craziest thing, Brian, is that as the temperature dropped, the high peaks around us started to freeze. And wow. that freezing was triggering rock slides. So there were rock slides yeah. coming down every few seconds. It's like watching a meteor shower, you know? Wow. And yeah. we were hearing these rock slides echo as they would you know, the, the rocks would tumble down the mountains. And I thought, this is so magical. This is so rare. Everything aligned perfectly for us to experience this. And I couldn't get the kids to sit still and quiet long enough to hear it. <laughs> I was like, what? But, you know, it's because it was so unfamiliar and they just didn't know how to manage themselves in nature. They're just too mm-hmm. uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, trying to build up to... um 
build up the, and educate kids to be silent in the outdoors or walk quietly um, or to stay quiet for a period of time is something that can be the most challenging part of of an outdoor experience when you're trying to be a guide to, to kids for sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you've seen it, but, um, I, I've known a lot of the kids that I worked with for years and it turns out that the experiences that they had in nature ended up changing the course of their lives. And I really believe that, especially for some people connecting with nature like that can be life changing, life impacting. And so I believe in it. I just think it's a great thing to do. Yeah, that's what I hope for. I, uh, two years ago, there's a story that I, it's in my latest book where I was able to able to take a group of uh, teenagers up to uh, uh, Point Reyes National Seashore, and we uh, we were in the, uh, camping out in the redwoods, and we were about to kayak across to um, kayak across Tamales Bay to go camp out by the shoreline. And there was this girl G, um, named Gianna, who I, that's not a real name. I kind of changed it for the story, but. Uh, Gianna was one of those kids that I had an amazing arc of an experience over the course of the, just a couple of days. And she was a, you know, someone that didn't get in the outdoors too much. And the first day we were there, we set up our tents and then we went exploring the redwoods. And this girl was, you know, with the other teenagers, we let the teenagers kind of like take the lead and kind of go off trail a little bit. And, she and a couple others were hiking up um, across this fallen redwood tree. And this redwood tree was kind of tilted at an angle on the hillside. So um, at parts of it were about 10 feet above the ground. And she had gotten like halfway across it when she started like, you know, screaming. And, and then we, we thought at first like she was screaming with kind of like, you know, teenage giddiness. And then we realized that, no, she is actually being attacked by yellow jackets. Oh, no. Yeah, so she's ten foot off the ground, balanced on a on a log, and she's being attacked by yellow jackets. So, um, so I have to kind of hustle up there and uh, get kind of between her and the nest, and then try to walk, try to slow walk her off this log without you know without her falling ten feet to the ground. Because if she panicked too much, you know she would. <laughs> she would definitely uh, crash right. um, possibly and you know break a few bones there uh and and so i'm being stung and she's being stung and we're kind of slow walking in our way down off this log and i i man, we managed to get down to the ground and the leader of the group she took takes gianna away um like you know running <laughs> running away through the forest while getting stung themselves a little bit and i i take some uh, kids the other direction and we gradually regroup and we don't see Gianna again until she's been, you know, to the hospital and she's been, you know, treated a little bit for 20 bee stings. Um, but when she came back, she was still in like, you know, fairly good spirits. And it was a definitely a very impactful moment for all of us as teenagers. But we were able to continue the trip, which was a great thing because the next day we, we kayaked across the bay and we went – uh, to this uh, kind of campsite just on the shoreline, this primitive area. And uh, that night we were able to kayak into the bay and see um, bioluminescent algae in the water. Mm. And it was, the for me, let alone the kids, for me it was one of those magical things I've ever experienced because there was no moon at all and we're out there in the kayaks and every time you, your your paddle hit the water it just created this like this bloom of of greenish white light that just sort of like 
um, billowed through the water. Like you, when you pushed against the water, you kind of created this shock wave of of uh, turbulence, and that turbulence caused these these algae to you know combine some chemicals to, to create that uh, little bit of a uh, little bit of light. And so, uh, like your oar was your magic wand. Because every time you <laughs> tap the water, you were creating these just brilliant displays of firework like um, glow, like glowing water. Um, and I, I, I kayaked back with her the, the next day across, back across the bay and Gianna had, she had lost her voice <laughs> from like screaming about the yellow jackets. Oh. So she had no voice left, but she still chattered, like chatted away the entire time, um, kayaking back. She was in such a good mood that she just hoarsely like, uh, like, uh, like ranted on like the entire way back. Just, just very giddy, very happy. Um, and she had, I th- like, I feel she found like, um, a certain degree of determination in herself and resilience that, you know, maybe she hadn't had a chance to, to experience before. So coming out of that adventure for her, she was able to, you know, uh, realize that what the certain capacity she had within herself to deal with the diversity and to deal with a uh, challenge like being stung 20 times and yeah. having to self-rescue or like or like be part of a, a, a tricky self-rescue off a off a log. So uh, I I expect that things like that really do impact a person's life. Yeah, no one wants to be stung 20 times <laughs> balanced on a log 10 feet off the ground, but you know when you're when you get through something like that and look back it's significant. It's like, oh, I've been through that. That was kind of tough. I can get through this next thing. You know, it, it, it builds confidence and self-awareness, I really think. Yeah. Um, that whole trip was, was, was pretty powerful. And, 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 and funny, too. Like that night when we were waiting for the skies to grow dark so we could go out in the kayaks, um, we noticed we had a, one group of uh, campers near us there on the beach, and these campers had lit a fire, and we were kind of occasionally staring across to their fire. And we noticed these these, these strange, shadowy figures, like kind of um, like walking, like or being lit by the the fire. You know, you you kind of like you think like you look across at shadowy <laughs> figures around a campfire, and you think like demons. You know, right, you think of witches, <laughs> Sasquatch. And we finally went over there. Some of our leaders went over there um, to see what was going on, and they were cows. Ah. And yeah, somehow uh, a, a group of cows had broken out of a nearby ranch and they had entered the beach and they were like suddenly tr- um, swarming our neighbor's campsite. And it was a bit worrisome for them because there was a, a bull or two that were also <laughs> among these cows. And they were trying to, you know, the bulls were kind of testing and trying to get past these campers so they could kind of go on further down the beach. And they finally, like, the the bulls like led the charge and they kind of went across their campsite. Luckily didn't crash any of their tents, but, uh, but the, uh, the other campers like came over to our, ca- our campsite and they're like, can we hang out, and hang out by your fire for a little while? <laughs> so they stayed with us while the, the bulls had the run of their side of the beach. And, uh, and the cows eventually like went over to some neighbor, a neighboring, uh, herd of cows that were across a fence. And we kind of, I kind of wondered if they were like, they're like conversing with each other about talking about joining forces and taking over the entire beach. <laughs> right. Uh, and eventually one of the cows did, uh, send a scout in our direction and kind of came close to our fire. And that's when like our leader, she decided that, all right, enough is enough. And she started like 
banging her, her hands together and chasing the cows away. And, and then we, all the rest of us decided, all right, it's on. So all our leaders kind of, uh, got together and started herding this cattle, like even, you know, bulls or no bulls. We kind of herded them out of our campsite, herded them out of our neighbor's campsite, tried pushing them back towards where we suspected there'd be some kind of open gate that was there. Um, but at one point, the, there was a, I got to, got to a point where the herd would no, go no further, and and uh, I guess <laughs> we'd hoped there'd be an open uh, gate behind them, but we didn't know. And I finally realized that, hey, we're kind of cornering a couple bulls, and maybe we should be thinking, rethinking our our strategy here. So uh, we left. Uh, we eventually left our, our neighboring campers to to uh, hang out with the the cows on their own, and we went back to. Uh, to go onto the bay and, and check out the algae. And, uh, thankfully the, uh, the ranchers did drive down in their ATVs to kind of take care of the cattle situation. Uh, but, uh, I, <laughs> it was definitely, a, a experience that we didn't think would be part of our, our, our week long adventure, oh, um, yeah. becoming a bunch of, become a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls. You never know what you're going to get, you know, and that's part of the joy of adventure. You step out your door and you have these experiences and, you know, your whole bioluminescence algae thing, I tell people magic is real. It's all around us. All you have to do is go experience it. But if you don't go out, you never will. You know, bioluminescence. So we have a, a biological and chemical explanation for why this happens. So someone would say, well, that's not magic. But when you're there in the water and your paddle is creating these these glowing waves, you know, then it's a magic moment. I don't care if it is scientifically explainable. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, no kidding. I, I, I feel so lucky to exp- have experienced that. And, and a couple of weeks later, I returned to a part of California called the Lost Coast. And I was just camped out alone on a hillside. And it was there was no stars, no moon. It was cl- totally clouded over. And I was I was seeing this weird glowing happening, gl- this glow happening out on the beach. And I, and I kind of approached the edge of the cliff there where I was camped. And and every wave that came in was the the front face of the wave was like crackling like uh like the front of a like the front face of a lightning storm wow and i i yeah just cuz the agitation of of the frothing waves was causing the the same algae to to glow and i um so like it was like glowing with purple lightning and that experience to me like that was definitely one of the most magical things i've ever seen because it was like seeing sea fairies kind of dancing out in the ocean um it was pure pure magic and and i felt i was like you know inwardly very giddy with the experience but also um very i don't know if i was gloating or what but i was the only one there that to kind of experience that and i just felt so lucky to have um i guess pushed myself to to reach that spot i was kind of at a a hillside next to a um, this crumbling cabin, which was probably haunted, but it still made it for a uh, still made for a great a great spot to uh, um, to see the ocean. And I love high spots. I love um, views. And so, whenever I'm trying to find a campsite, whether it's with my car or wherever I'm backpacking, I'm always um, trying to go a little further so I have the perch. I'm, I'm all about the perches. Yeah, that's fun. I I get that too. I I like to camp near water, so I'm almost always looking for water so that I you know can be within striking distance of that. But I love to get into the high places and get to the point I'm slightly uncomfortable with the exposure, and then just sit down. 
you know, and stay there until I'm completely at ease with it and get to soak up that view and what's going on in the world around us. You know, it's, again, magical to overuse the term. (laughs) Hey guys, Travis here. I wanted to thank Anton, Christy, William, and Jeremiah. They are either Patreon patrons or members of our Adventure Sports Podcast members site. If you guys want to help support the show, please do us a favor and visit members.adventuresportspodcast.com or patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Every little bit helps and we love the support. Thanks guys. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Man, you've gone out on so many adventures, and I'm glad that you shared them in your books because it's a lot of fun, you know, when I can't go out to grab your book and read about one of your adventures and chuckle because, you know, I have a parallel adventure in the back of my mind, and I'm just like, yeah, man, this is what it's all about. So I don't know anything about your latest book, Falling Off the Map. So where did the title come from, first of all? Uh, the title came from the need to <laughs> create the, uh, the third title in the series. When you off got one map. called Off the Map <laughs> and you got further off the map, the next one, uh, is it going to be even, even further off the map? Or um, uh, So I, there was just some symmetry in kind of doing a title that was, um, I guess, emphasized the, the, the danger or the... Um, uh, the, I guess the precariousness of some of the, uh, adventures that I had during the four years that were, um, that this book, uh, encapsulates. Mm. Well, I like the title. I, it makes me think of the whole flat earth theory, but it also makes me think about what happens when we get so far out there that, you know, you, you really are depending on your own wits because the map's not there to help you anymore, you know? So uh, mm. it says 54 explorations into the wildest reaches of the American West. There's your subtitle. But I have to mention your other books. 53 Tales was the, the middle book and the first book, 55 Weeks. So what's this 50, 53, 54 business? <laughs> I guess, well, the, all these stories were originally published in a newspaper in upstate New York. So they each were about like a thousand words and it takes about, you know, 50 or so stories to create something that's, uh, that's uh, hefty enough to create a paperback out of first three years. I wrote articles. I was able to take longer summers, like closer to four months. And so it only took three summers worth to create the first book off the map. Um, you know, books two and three required four summers worth of articles and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's why there's like, it's, it's, it's not a nice even number like 50. It's just, I wanted to just basically take people through, um, through a summer, like from start to finish. And so that's why each section of the book, like falling off the map, each section starts with a, a map of the Western States and it shows like which parts of the, of this, of our country that each chapter takes place of. 
And so from week one, week one usually starts a little closer to home in California. And then I gradually kind of head out to the Cascades or the Rockies. And then by thir- week 13 or week 14, we're kind of heading back close to home, usually uh, uh, sneaking one more hike into the Sierra Nevadas before, uh, before I have to return to work in the fall. Mm. And you know what I like about your books? Um, I'm way too busy. And when I have spare time, I'm usually outside, right? Mountain biking or something. So yeah. when I want to read, it's hard for me to have time to read a book. But I can take your book, and the format is that it's a collection of essentially short stories. And so I can read one or two, like before you go to sleep at night or something, squeeze it in because it's so enjoyable, and it works with a busy schedule. So for me, I think that's great. I like the short story format. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, each story is just you know very self-contained. If there's if there's any arc uh, that kind of that kind of covers the entire series, it's just the question of all right, when is this guy going to learn? You know, when is he going to settle down? And that's it has happened to a certain degree. The last couple of summers, I've I've traveled less and less just because I'm trying to maintain a good long-term relationship. You know, with with someone in in California. So what happens um, to the that's best of us? <laughs> yeah 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 that's but they're, awesome they're... congratulations thank you thanks so would you be so kind as to share an excerpt from your latest book i'd love to yes uh you know most of these stories are usually about either you know dangers like cliffs or bears or they're about you know beauty or they're about kind of humor like the cows there uh uh do you i don't know you feel like a you want an animal story you want a cliff story you want a uh well, let's do a cliff story. nature story Let's do a cliff okay. story first. Yeah, well, maybe we'll read part of a uh, part of a story that takes place in, uh, I guess, uh, kind of closer to your neck of the woods. Uh, a place that I love is Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. That's uh, a place kind of northwest of of Denver, and I know you know it very well. Sure, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's a great national park. There's uh, I, I worked there for a few seasons. I was a, a guide um, up to some of the peaks and some of the lakes up there. And on my off time, I would try to um, head up to the uh, up in the ridge lines. And it, it's just a great park for uh, for stringing like multiple peaks together. Because you, what what happens is you climb about two thousand feet, and then you start like nicking off like one one peak after another. Like there's these ridge lines where you can kind of tick off seven in a row before you climb down. So I'm, I'm gradually kind of nicking off like every single peak of the park as far as that I can get to. And I'm kind of now going on to some of the very mo- minor peaks that are there, like the, some of the little spurs that kind of jut out from the sides of, of some of the mountains. Like two mountains are Knob Top and Gable Top. And so the story I'm going to read is going to be part of a chapter where I decided to kind of try to climb to these kind of these rock pinnacles that jet out from the sides of Knob Top and Gable Top. One was called the Little, Matter, Little Matterhorn um, because it, it definitely bore a resemblance to uh, that famous feature in the in the Alps. And then there was the Gable and then there was, uh, I don't know, one other. So uh, on one day I kind of patched up my, um, taped up my heel, which was very weak at the time, and uh, set off towards uh, Little Matter, Matterhorn. And I made it to the top of that. Uh, it's just this kind of knife edge pinnacle. And I made it to the very top there. So here's where I started to, just after I reached Little, Ma- Little Matterhorn. I reached the tip of the monolith just as gathering storm clouds began to wring out some of their moisture. One pinnacle down, two to go. 
My next challenge was to drop 1,000 feet into Tourmaline Gorge and climb up to where the gable hung above Fern Lake. One of my books suggested descending a snow gully, but it looked far too precipitous to attempt without without an ice axe. So I made my own path by plunging down the steep northern flank of the Matterhorn, hopping down grassy banks and altering my course whenever cliffs became too sheer to traverse. I was almost to the bottom of the gorge when the angle of the mountainside became too vertical to continue. It was frustrating and disheartening, but I saw no way to easily slide down the last 30 feet. I would need to backtrack halfway up the Matterhorn in order to scout out an alternate route. One possibility warranted investigation, however. A tight crevice penetrated the band of cliffs, offering a seductive path to the valley floor. But the crack measured only as wide as my shoulders, and instead of possessing an evenly sloping floor, the cleft contained a series of six-foot drops where handholds were nearly non-existent. I was looking at the world's most confining and dangerous staircase. If I fell down those steps, there would be no recovery. I climbed down as far as I dared, then scrambled back up the stairs so I could sit for a while and ponder how badly I wanted to risk the final two steps. Searching for a detour probably cost too much time. On the other hand, the earlier rain shower had made the rocks more slippery than I would have liked. As I was dwelling on my decision, the clouds overhead began to release a second batch of raindrops onto the side of, little, of the little Matterhorn. Time was up. If I was going to do this thing, it had to be now. First, I tried texting my girlfriend so that someone would know I was about to attempt a boneheaded headed move, but the signal wasn't strong enough. Nevertheless, I headed down to the stairwell and faced the penultimate step once again. To ensure full mobility, I tossed down one hiking pole and used the other to gently lower my backpack to the next level. When I let go of the second pole, it remained, it remained standing upright with a sharp tip pointing in my direction. Great, I thought. Now I can impale myself before I smash my head open. I turned to face the mountain and slowly lowered myself down the ledge backwards, using my upper body and hips to push against the walls and add friction. My fingers grasped at any crevice I could find so that I wouldn't slip before my feet touched the level surface again. Somehow, I kicked the offending pole out of the way, dropped the last six inches to the ground, and then flung my arms out to brace against the sides of the crevice before my momentum carried me over the edge of the final step. My nerves felt slightly shredded, but I repeated the process one more time and walked away from the stairwell of doom, miraculously uninjured. The cliffs of Little Matterhorn were now behind me, but unfortunately, the cliffs of the Gable Ridgeline still lay ahead. And beyond that, the battlements of Castle Rock also needed to be scaled. None of these routes had trails. Instead, I had to bushwhack vertically, climbing the limbs of trees and bushes the entire way and gaining countless scratches in the process. But after four hours of mucking about, I acquired my last two trophies. And as beaten up as I undoubtedly looked, I still managed to hitch a ride out of the National Park, which allowed me to recover my Jeep and find a place to camp for the night before darkness fell. I could have sworn that the ordeal was over, but by far the most painful experience of the day, and perhaps the year, occurred when I was safely ensconced in my tent that evening. I had wrapped my injured left ankle in athletic tape as as an experiment that morning, and it had felt amazingly strong, better than any time since I twisted it a month ago. However, I neglected to shave the hairs from my lower leg before applying the tape, and when I ripped off my handiwork, all the hairs came with it. Every single one. Ow. I can't remember the last time I screamed so loud. Funny how our most painful injuries tend to be self-inflicted. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have another passage you could read for us? I really like that one. Let's hear another one. I, I'm going to read the first part of one of my final, actually, this is the final chapter of the book. And uh, it was a nice, it was when I was 
during my last week of a summer of travel and I had read about this um, hot or hot springs. Well, no, not a hot spring, actually a warm spring that was in the deserts of Utah, of Utah in the western side. And I don't want to give too much away. Actually, I, I, I won't reveal to anybody exactly what this place was called, but uh, the story is, is pretty vague. And if you, if you do some research, research you can probably um, come across some reference to it somewhere. But uh, I just wanted to read this story because it's a nice, uh, it's just, it was a, again, it's just a beautiful, beautiful spot that I was lucky to be, um, lucky to be in. In the barren reaches of western Utah, far from absolutely anywhere, clear water flows from caves at the foot of a limestone mountain, splashes down waterfalls into sandy bottom pools before following a reedy path to a ranch in some lonely hay fields. I spent over two hours driving dusty roads through the Great Salt Lake Desert before I found this oasis, and by then I was primed to absorb all the cooling amenities the springs had to offer. I didn't even bother with a suit. Through a swiftly flowing channel, I swam upstream like one of the native speckled dace minnows towards a log that hung above the creek. Kicking my feet as hard as I could, I managed to grab hold of an old rope that dangled, that dangled from the middle of the log. And then I simply clung to the, to the line and let my body get batted about by the current. All the sweat and dust from the long journey washed away. And when my arms grew tired, I released the rope and let the water carry me downstream to where my towel and sandals lay waiting. As a setting for my final summer night in the wild, this place exceeded all my expectations. It represented everything I'd come to appreciate about public lands in that it was a national treasure without signs or posted regulations, whose beauty inspired respect, and whose remote nature kept many who would be abusive to the land at a distance. Perhaps it would not always remain so. A growing human population breeds all sort of individuals. Environmental protectors, yes, but also callous users. Sites like these owed their survival to obscurity. And in the age of instant information, obscurity is a rapidly diminishing resource. Writers such as myself must be careful not to pull back the curtain too far, lest we lead the masses to the lands we hold most dear and unwittingly aid in their destruction. Still, I long to share this place with others, almost as much as I wanted to conceal and keep it safe. Everyone needs experiences like these in their lives, to know what it's like to have a peaceful night on a soft mattress with the dark skies above them, far from any cities so that the only glow in the sky comes from the silken tendrils of the Milky Way. People need moments away from cell phones and TV screens, when the air is motionless, yet warm and alive with the sounds of crickets and rushing water. My evening was full of those moments, truly a gift as I was journeying home to Southern California and didn't know when I would experience such joyous solitude again. In the morning, the rays of the rising sun filtered through the, the Arundo reeds, bounced off the surface of the largest pool and illuminated the interior of a, of a fern-lined grotto tucked into the mountainside. I've been waiting for the right lighting to assist in my explorations of this hidden realm. Carefully holding my camera above water, I ducked my head underneath the overhanging plants at the entrance and waded into the cave. The room was designed for fairies rather than human-sized creatures. I couldn't raise my shoulders above the water without hitting my head on the ceiling. Switching on my headlamp revealed a complete rainbow of color beginning with metallic red and purple streaks along the roof of the cave and transitioning to blue rock at the outer edge where the green ferns hung down, beyond which several clumps of orange and yellow grasses could be glimpsed on the banks above the pool. It was also raining inside the cave, with droplets trickling down through cracks in the ceiling, falling and creating a hypnotizing pattern of concentric, of concentric and overlapping circles across the pool's surface. Dragonflies and damselflies patrolled the entrance, and a persistent current tugged at my chest, indicating that greater mysteries resided deeper within the mountain, if only I dared to follow the water to its source. 
The cave narrowed towards the back, and the ceiling lowered even further, forcing me to dip my head underwater to swim past the tightest section. As the natural lighting diminished, I felt increasingly nervous, excited, and amazed. Amazed at such that a tiny mountain in the middle of the desert could produce so much groundwater. 9,000 gallons a minute, to be exact. The miracle must have, must have owed itself to some complex system of hydrology that carried water from wetter regions hundreds of miles away. Or perhaps there were more mystical powers at work. The presence of magic felt irrefutable when I emerged from the passage to a chamber ten feet wide that was dripping with flowstone formations. This was truly the domain of fairies. No elegant stalactites graced the ceiling. Just, mem- just, membribus- <laughs> just membranous wet curtains with coralline flourishes that made the room resemble a living organ. Water seeped continuously from the walls and pushed into the room from tunnels beneath the surface. Who knows what ancient secrets one might find on the other side of those flooded passageways if one had the right size and the ability to hold one's breath indefinitely. A man died back here in 2003, possibly while attempting to answer that very question. I was content to let submerged mysteries lie. When I had my fill of the cavern, I lifted my feet and let the current gently carry me down the emerald corridor and back into the sunlight. So it goes on from there, but all that's a good spot to leave it. By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Well, that's a beautiful account, very well written. I, uh, I'm amazed that you found such a place. I mean, that's that's neat. Yeah, I I found just reference to it in a book, and the book basically. It did definitely, this short description did not give this place justice. And, uh, and that's what, something I also value that there can be, you know, this, every, every place is just seems, seems so mapped, but, um, even, even if you have like a written location of a place, um, it can, and you, you arrive there and you show up there, you can still find, <laughs> you know, mysteries and magic that, that's, uh, that far out um, outshine the uh, anything that you fo- you found in a book, any description. Oh yeah, I agree. I, I think you have to go, and I, I also think that the descriptions never do the place justice, especially as the light changes in the morning or in the evening, or the weather moves in, and just amazing. Yeah, and that's it's weird how you have to be very careful these days about with the age of the internet. You know what you what you post and what you create, you know, what you describe, um, just like, you know, outside a magazine catches flack for, for its articles on like uh, the 12 best secret campsites, you know, uh, information. 
yeah, information can cause areas to be, um, you know, <laughs> loved to death in a lot of cases. Um, I was just reading today about um, Conundrum Hot Springs in, in Colorado, which um, is close to Aspen, and it's a place that uh, uh, is <laughs> definitely has been in danger of being loved to, loved to death. It's a, it's a hike. You have to hike out uh, nine miles to, to reach in the backcountry. So it's technically an instant wilderness, but so many people have found out about this place that visitation has jumped from like a um, a thousand people a year to five thousand people a year, just within the span of um, you know a um, couple like a couple years. So they're they're definitely considering um, creating a permit system for people to go out there, which I, I I fully support. You know, it's a it's a sad thing that you have to do to some of these areas, but um, but it's it's with an expanding population, it's something that we just have to uh, um, you know we have to appreciate and respect. Oh yeah. You know, Brian, I did a podcast, boy, nearly two years ago, just a mini podcast that I called Quarter Mile Camp. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole thrust of it is that if you're willing to get just a quarter mile off the beaten path, then you'll mm-hmm. have a place all to yourself. It's not that our natural areas are too small. It's it's that everyone tries to go to the exact same place. Yeah. And it, it mm-hmm. creates a lot of problems. But the idea is that if you're willing to go up a forest road, and then walk a quarter mile, you'll be in a paradise that maybe no one has visited for centuries or decades or at least, you know, a long, long time. And it's just because everyone sticks to the roads or they stick to the trails and and not many people actually venture off. Yeah, that's true with hiking. That's true with uh, backpacking. And it's true with uh, with car camping as well. Um the, that, that book I did, like a renegade car camping is, is, uh, kind of all about trying to encourage people to take that, uh, take that forest service road that isn't even signed and just drive down it to see if you can find a, um, a campsite on your own where you can have solitude, where you might be able to have beauty, where you might be able to have some views. And, uh, um, and, uh, in writing that book, the challenging part was people want, um, people want a, a full guide to exactly the best locations to, to car camp. And, um, and that's what I had to be very careful about in the book to describe the type of places people can camp, whether it's like, you know, national forests or, or BLM land or a wildlife refuge and kind of, um, talk people through the, um, the, Dis- initial discomfort of exploring some of these side roads and uh, uh, places like you know camping near water towers or cell phone towers and things like that, um, and and trying to also you know trying to get people to like not not uh, dislike me for not revealing like all, like the best locations that are out there. Um, I had to write it as more of a general guide, and and later on I because of uh, pressure some pressure I did eventually create a um, uh, a, a, a much smaller little almost pamphlet sized book called, uh, I think it was like the 10 best renegade campsites in the, in the West. Um, but there were, those are places that are, um, I knew could handle a, a lot, like a lot more impact than they were without getting destroyed. Like places that, um, were, wasn't like a specific campsite in some place else. It was just about like a certain region of uh, a certain region where you could go and you can find some dispersed campsites uh, to yourself. One thing that I stress is that you have to learn how to take care of nature and leave it better than you found mm-hmm. it even, you know, 
And yeah. when you're able mm-hmm. to do that, be a part of nature and care for nature, then it's kind of like it opens up, uh, like in my mind, it opens up the permission to go places and to experience the magic there and then leave it as good or better than you found it. And I really encourage people to do that. It's a, it's critical that we don't put too much pressure on just one place. And that's why it's so wonderful to get off the beaten path a little bit. But when you do, you want to leave it untouched. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, I grew up, uh, grew up Catholic. So maybe I have like an inner sense of guilt about <laughs> <laughs> just hangs over, hangs over me a little bit in life. So yeah, when I drive up to a, um, a, a dispersed campsite, you know, part of me feel, even though the ground has been already compacted by previous tires, you know, in, in a sense, I, I almost feel a little guilt about, uh, I, I don't know. I sometimes feel guilty about like, again, just, um, the impact that you still, you know, you're not allowing that land to recover by driving there. So, um, you know, no grass is going to grow where you park your Jeep for a little while. So in order to kind of, um, counter that, that sense of guilt, you know, I, I try to pick up, you know, I get a little uh, grocery bag and go around and pick up the campsite, pick up all those little bottle caps and, and soda bottle tabs and cigarettes or, or bullet shells. And those are the kind of things you, you do find a lot in, uh, in uh, dispersed campsites. Yeah. And that's been my practice and it's our way of showing the gratitude that it's there. You know, if I camp somewhere, I'm going to leave it better than I found it. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. It's the, it's the transaction we do in order to, uh, um, compensate for our impacts. Well, man, let's talk a little bit about your renegade camping book and about all of these books. How can people get uh, a copy of this? Oh, well, on my website, which is offthemapbooks.com, uh, when you pull up that site, there's a little button in the middle that says explore. And if you hit that button, it'll, it'll take you to a spot where you can just pop in your email address and it'll send you a link to uh, a couple of free books. So I do offer, uh, I do offer renegade car camping, uh, for free on that site. And then also the first book in my off the map series off the map, you can get that there for free. Uh, you can also purchase those guys on on Amazon. Um, there are paperback copies of the uh, off the map books, but but yeah, just you just want to get a taste of uh, taste of uh, my writing. Yeah, go to the website and uh, um, see what you see what you find, see what you like. The website's also a place where I, I'm going to continue to um, to journal and write kind of short stories about uh, my travels. And I'm writing those kind of stories a little bit slower these days, not quite as often. So it's going to take a little while for those stories to accumulate um, and become a fourth volume. So, uh, so that's the that spot, and also on Facebook is where you can find like fresh stories and fresh fresh pictures. Facebook, it's also off the map books. Just type that in, or uh, Instagram off the map books. That's where you'll find uh, my photographs. Right on, and I love the price. When you can get the book for free, but I know your secret. You want to get us hooked because it's so good, and then we're going to buy the rest of them. But I, I'm with you. It's a good thing to do. Yeah, yep. That's in indie public indie publishing. That's what uh, that's what it's all about. You know, you get them hooked on that first book, and if they if they enjoyed it, if they like it, they'll they'll keep seeking seeking you out. Well, I definitely enjoy your books. I, I've enjoyed a lot of evenings of just reading a story or two before I drift off to sleep and. And it makes me sleep better. It gives me good dreams. Well, thanks. It's been great to have the opportunity to put these stories out there and have um, people um, appreciate them. Yeah. You know, as we're talking about taking care of nature, 
while we love nature, not loving it to death, um, the the thought of all the recent fires kind of pops up. And, you know, some fires are natural. Some fires are caused by, by human mistakes. But you really experienced some some difficulties with fire lately. What's What's been going on there? Well, uh, you know, California has been hit, like a lot of states in the West, by some recent fires. And we had one that kind of hit really close to home this, this past July. Um, the cause of the fire is still under investigation. We're not quite sure. But the fire was called the Whittier Fire. And it was named after um, this place, Camp Whittier, which is a place where I've been working the last couple of years. Um, I work there doing uh, team building sessions for uh, for kids and adults. And I heard about this as I was flying from the East Coast. I was um, in North Carolina for a little bit. Um, I got to experience the, the tremendous waterfalls they have out there. Um, so many waterfalls. It was crazy. And uh, But as I was flying west, once I touched down in Phoenix, um, I started getting texts about, have you heard about the fires in California? And I... I just got a few texts in before I hit the air again and was flying over further west to Santa Barbara. And as the plane was circling down to touch down in the airport, there was this, this huge um, pyrocumulus cloud that was just looming over the mountains, looming over the valley where I, I both live and where I work. And I, I, I definitely, this feeling of dread kind of sunk into me. And once I touched down, I got cell service again and some coworkers, uh, uh, called me up and said like uh or i don't know if you've heard but uh, one of the camps there has, has been lost it's been overrun and so the fire started in this place called camp whittier and that's the place where i work currently and it uh crossed through the valley and ended up um overrunning a place called rancho alegre a boy scout property and i worked at rancho alegre for about 10 years they had an outdoor science school um there that i one of the places i've talked about where sixth graders came for uh, for four days and three nights. But that place got just got wrecked. Every building got destroyed except for their pool house and their dining hall. Like all their cabins, all their staff housing got destroyed. A lot mm. of friends that I had, you know, lost everything um, that was there. So that place got wrecked. Um, Camp Whittier, where I worked, uh, got lucky in some cases. They lost a bunch of cabins, lost um, the whole maintenance yard, but. The fire kind of skirted around some essential buildings, um, so that that place got half baked. But while I was touching down there in California, like a serious situation was happening at, at a third camp. There was three camps there, and the third one, kind of right there in the middle, was called Circle V Ranch. Um, and this this place, like all three places, had had kids there for summer camp, and. Uh, Rancho Alegre got all their campers out in time, and uh, Camp Whittier got their kids out in time. But Circle V Ranch, their had kids that were trapped there, because that place had this very long entrance road, this long winding entrance road that led down to the highway, and the entrance road had gotten overrun by the fire. And just within the span of a couple hours, the the blaze just just took off. The winds were intense. the The temperatures were like 100 degrees, or sorry, 110 degrees. And there are campers that are trapped there. And so uh, uh, luckily a, a local firefighter had a, um, a bulldozer and managed to push its way up the entrance road, you know, pushing aside these fallen boulders, pushing aside these fallen trees. And a patrol vehicle like, you know, crept, uh, crept slowly behind it and they got to the fire and then the, the, road got, <laughs> the road got swamped again by flames. 
So uh, at least they had a firefighter up there that kind of gradually was kind of cutting and kind of preparing, um, trying to create some uh, some space around the buildings there. So they they kept the kids in the dining hall and kept them safe there while the fire kind of like <laughs> you know crept close to them on all sides and um, and the rescue vehicles that were coming from the highway to try to evacuate them they they, they tried going down the road and it took three or four tries before they finally were able to break um, to clear enough debris and, and and you know and there was enough of a pause in the flames for them to get up there to get to the the camp and and um, put the kids into vans and get them out of there. Wow. So, yeah, so it was a kind of a close call for, uh, for one out of the three. And, and, and that camp, fortunately, it, it, I think it suffered the least amount of building damage. Um, and they're also extremely lucky that nobody, uh, in this entire fire, you know, whether it was fighting the fire or whether it was people that were trapped by the flames, you know, nobody died in that mm. situation. So Brian, we've seen an awful lot of fires in the West, you know, in the last few years. And I don't know if they're really increasing or if if it's always been this way, but it is a problem. And I'm just curious what your take is on all these fires. Well, as you know, fire has always been an integral part of the the natural systems, the natural cycles that happen out here in the West. Um, But uh, because of climate change, you know, certain areas, the fire fires have become, um, have you know happened more often or more easily and it's partially due to fire suppression which kind of builds up more fuels more twigs more more uh more logs more more dead trees you know there's there's always more fuel there but also the southern california has experienced a lot of droughts and it's based on projections it's going to be drier in the future so higher temperatures droughts and this buildup of fuels has created the potential for just these uh, you know, giant mega fires that that erupt and can cost millions and millions of dollars to fight. Um, sometimes with limited limited success, um, this uh, Whittier fire, like it grew to about eleven thousand acres before it was finally uh, put out. Um, but yeah, it's just it's part of um, part of life, you know, part of life out in the West. Um, California has the place where I'm from. We have some forests called oak woodlands, and then we also have this um, ecosystem called chaparral, which is made up of just um, shrubs and uh, um, shrubs and small trees. And these are plants that are actually designed to burn. You know, they have um, a lot of these natural oils that that are in their twigs and in their leaves. And so, when they catch fire, they burn hot, and they'll burn right down to the ground. But these these plants, um, they put a lot of energy into their root systems. A lot of times they'll have this root, this root ball called a root crown, which might get cooked on the top after a fire sweeps through. But then um, the root crowns will sprout, and they'll start sprouting just a couple of days after a fire, and wow. these uh, plants will grow right back. Yeah. So um, yeah, fire is. Uh, um, uh, in the past, fire would usually sweep through these uh, chaparral systems every twenty to twenty-five years. But uh, around populations like Santa Barbara, where this fire was, you know, we've tried to suppress those fires, um, which in a sense is, you know, we got to do because we want to protect the places we love. And but uh, in a sense, we're kind of stacking, stacking things against us. It's the more you suppress fires, the more the fuels build. And when the fire eventually comes, it's going to be harder to control. Yeah. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because. 
it's it's good to help get the word out. I think awareness matters. And the reason I say that, uh, recently, I guess it was last year, there was a group, I believe from Alabama, they were from a, a wet place where it's hard to even get a fire going, you know. They came to Colorado, they made a campfire, and they probably could have been more careful with that, but the biggest issue was they threw some dirt on the ashes and thought it was out and left. And of course, that mm-hmm. started a forest yeah. fire, and it the wind kicks up just a little bit. I think people that come from more wet, humid areas don't realize that in the West, it's dry, and fires can start very easily. They can spread just way too aggressively, and they're very, very difficult to get put out again. So I think it matters for people to be aware and say, ooh, fire's dangerous, and this may not be the the climate I'm accustomed to when they come and visit some of these Western places. Yeah, we have to totally change our habits, especially uh, we East. Uh, that that travel to the west there's a lot we gotta we gotta learn um uh, both about fires and about i just oh, i just re- just reminded uh, myself of us of a of my first bear encounter that was a uh, at least a bear that i encountered in the, in the midwest um you know i just camped out outside and we put our, our cooler outside the tent and the biggest black bear i've ever, ever encountered uh <laughs> quickly found quickly found that cooler and was just munging on a tub of butter um I, I have a feeling like it just it knew that this was a, a, a place where it could easily find uh, clueless campers, clueless East Coasters traveling across country, and it, it knew the every common mistake that we, we would make. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to learn. We can never be too careful, no doubt about it. Well, Brian, um, we're about out of time, but one thing I'd like to ask, I'm always asking people that have managed to uh, – to have an adventure-focused lifestyle like yourself, to share any tips or tricks that they might have for others who, who think that they would like to kind of reboot their lives and find a way to spend more time doing the things they really love to do. So do you have any ideas for us? I, I guess I would just encourage, um, consider the dispersed camping lifestyle. And, and dispersed camping doesn't mean you have to convert a whole van to a uh, um, to having a bed in the back. It doesn't mean you have to, to get an RV or motorhome. It just means you can, uh, you know, throw a tent in, in near the back of your G, your, your truck or your car and, uh, and drive out on forest service roads. And, and, uh, and, you know, I guess my writings might be able to help you f- to find these areas, but yeah, head out there and, and, you know, and, you know, gradually you learn about the things that, help things make things more comfortable i would throw (laughs) buy a 20 dollar um inflatable mattress you know from big five sporting goods or someplace like that and inflate it with using your car's 12 volt 12 volt adapter and that way when you you car camp you don't have to worry about finding like flat ground or you don't have to worry about that the ground's too rocky you can just throw that thing on the ground and maybe put a tarp down throw that down and just put your tent on top of that and that way you have you know, a lot of flexibility about, you know, being able to camp anywhere. Um, so yeah, um, just, you know, uh, pick a spot and, uh, and don't, and if you're worried about costs, you know, think about, just think about car camping. It's a you know, cheap, cheap way to get yourself places and, and survive for a while out there um, yeah. on, on a very small budget. It really doesn't have to cost much to, uh, to get out and enjoy this stuff. And uh, I'm sure that by reading your books, people can see the style you're talking about with this. And with the renegade camping, they get the idea. So thanks so much for for sharing that with us and for making the books available so we can live vicariously through you a little bit. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for uh, let me let me let me be on tonight, and uh, wish you luck in your own adventures. All right, Brian, thank you so much again for your time and for being on the show, and for all of our listeners out there, make sure that you do get out there and have some fun. Coming up on Thursday's episode, Graham Heimstra introduces us to bikepacking the Oregon Outback Trail. So stay tuned, and until then, get out and have some fun. 